A pair of Canadian men have been convicted in Australia for their roles running a multi-million dollar criminal drug network. The pair are the latest Canadians lured by a lucrative drug market only to be swept up down under in high-profile stings by Australian authorities. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post reporter Adrian Humphreys joins me to discuss how the men got involved in the criminal underworld, how they were ultimately brought down, and how Australian authorities want Canada to do more to address the problem of our criminals doing business on their shores. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, or tell your friends about us. Adrian, as part of your work for the National Post, you keep tabs on some Canadians who are garnering themselves a bit of a nefarious reputation in the criminal underworld around the world. And recently you had a piece about a pair of young men, well, I guess not too young, but young men from BC who got themselves caught up with the law in Australia. And I'm just wondering first, can you tell me who Barry Ho and Van Hugh Lee are? Van Hugh Lee and Barry Ho are a pair of childhood friends who grew up in Vancouver area, Burnaby and Vancouver, and seem to have had this um, ambition right from teenagers of being international drug lords or, or narcos of some description. And they seem to have put an awful lot of effort into that over the years and had some success until their world came crashing down. Mm -hmm. How young were they when they got involved in drug trafficking? And did it all start out of Canada or did they leave Canada and start this kind of drug network globally? Well, there's not tons of uh, information. I, I spoke to a couple of friends of theirs from the old days, and they told me that they uh, let, you know, left school fairly early. They started hanging around with the Vietnamese gangs in the area that were slinging drugs back on the Vancouver and the suburban streets around it. This was in the, the what I call the easygoing days before all the gang feuds and the alliances made Vancouver one of the most dangerous underworlds. At the time, it was a fairly relaxed place. There was bikers and there was a couple of Vietnamese gangs and that was seemingly it. And that was sort of their birthday. One of them had family involved in organized crime, one who was uh, doing some grow ops in the Vancouver area, another that was actually involved in a very serious operation that uh, a lot of people in Vancouver will remember. And that was Project Paragon, a big RCMP international drug trafficking investigation. So they certainly had some roots, some outlaw roots for much to build on. And the piece that you wrote about these two gentlemen and their conviction in Australia, it sounds like it was a very involved and detailed investigation on the part of Australian authorities. Do we know when they got on the radar of police down under? I have an idea of when. The, the, the how is a little bit of a mystery. And I have some ideas on that. But, but basically, about 18 months ago, they met uh, with someone who was offering to be a new partner of theirs. Now, Lee and Ho were not stupid. They were very cautious fellows, and they didn't just jump in with this guy. And they met with him repeatedly, insisting on face-to-face -face meetings, you know, uh, didn't want to be on the phones, didn't want to, you know, take too many chances. And they met with him repeatedly all over the world. Now, we're talking about meetings face-to-face -face in restaurants and bars in Thailand, in Panama, Colombia, Vietnam, in, in Bali, Indonesia. And over this year and a half, they really developed a relationship with this guy that was purporting to be a gangland gatekeeper that could get their product into Australia when, in fact, it was really an undercover police officer. Mm -hmm. And as you say in your piece, you know, these guys were cautious guys. 
they had aerial drones to check for surveillance. How did the police get onto their operation, or is that something that we're still not sure about? I suspect at the time that this operation began, the uh, the Australian Federal Police was right in the thick of a very innovative operation with the FBI, where the FBI had created an encrypted phone app that was marketed to criminals for them to do their deals supposedly in secret, but really it was being monitored with, in conjunction with the Australian Federal Police. Mm-hmm. I suspect that's how they got on their radar, whether it was them that were using it directly or people they were communicating with were using this. These compromised secret communication methods had led police to an awful lot of investigations. I suspect that's how they came to their attention. And you mentioned the aerial drones, and I found this quite interesting. I was able to confirm at least two instances of when they sent up aerial drones to surveil the area to make sure there weren't police surveillance units nearby. One was before a meeting, perhaps, I believe, with, with in fact, the undercover officer, maybe in an early one when they weren't too sure of him, and another one when they were actually transferring money for drugs and they had drones in the area looking for police surveillance and thankfully due to the undercover they they had a pretty good sense of what they were up to and they were able to avoid that detection despite their uh, counter surveillance efforts as their drug network grew and they started looking at international markets i guess is the best way to phrase it were they still based out of canada or were they using other countries for their operations uh, they were truly jet setters now they have vietnamese background they spent time in vietnam They certainly relocated at some point to Melbourne, Australia, and I don't know exactly when that took place. The Australian police referred to it as a Melbourne-based organization. They developed a relationship, and this became quite important to them, with a businessman. This is a very successful, legitimate businessman in Australia who was involved in importation, exportation, and he became a bit of a mentor to them, Hmm. and and that became a very key relationship, and that um, also could have been how police got onto them if it wasn't, in fact, through the encrypted chat methods. But uh, this was a businessman that was taking a cut of the product moving in in return for his assistance in various ways within Australia. So they took Melbourne, Australia as their new home. Australia is a very drug-hungry and very profitable country for narcos. They target it a lot because as an island, everything has to be imported, which means the prices are higher. You can buy your Coke much cheaper in the world. And and if you can get it and land it successfully in Australia, you can sell it for a heck of a lot more. So these two men obviously had to have been operating this drug network for quite a while, especially because as you say in your piece, it was 18 months of meetings with this undercover officer before they trusted him or brought him in as a possible business partner before they were arrested. How long ago were they arrested and what ultimately was it that led to their arrest? Was there a a particular shipment where they caught bringing in a load of cocaine? Was it a deal that they were making? How did they get caught? So there were a number of successful operations and I'm not sure how many, and they also had a few trip ups along the way. One of their things that perhaps suggests their inexperiences, they arranged for hundred kilos of cocaine to be uh, hidden into a shipping container in Panama, which was used as sort of their fulcrum from which to send their drugs abroad. And they had hired help. They were supposed to uh, put the drugs into a shipping container that was being shipped to an address where Lee and Ho were supposed to, expecting to, to meet it. But instead, the Panamanian helper decided to just steal the drugs. They, they found more profit in just keeping their 100 kilos. And poor Lee and Ho, they flew to Australia They went to Melbourne to accept the delivery of their expected 100 kilos and found nothing there. So they had that misfortune along the way. 
by 2017, they certainly had a direct contact to a Colombian cocaine producer mm-hmm. and were, as well as importing drugs directly for themselves, they were also brokering the sales for others. So they were buying much more than they were delivering. And uh, that was probably funding a lot of their operations. When they eventually closed down the operation and made the arrest, this was in uh, 2017. You know, they seemed to work in 100 kilo loads. This one was uh, 92 kilos. They had 26 bricks in each of uh, three black uh, hockey bags, and they had it placed into a shipping container in Panama. Like the, this one went to plan. It traveled in a container ship to Melbourne, and it was there that the police then intercepted it, discovered the cocaine, and then pulled the trigger. Those sweeping arrests, uh, I think 12 raids across Melbourne, hmm. wrapping up um, money people and associates of theirs. Actually, four Canadians ended up being arrested, along with Lee and Ho. Uh, one of them was acquitted at trial. Uh, a third one was was convicted alongside of them. We'll be right back. Ultimately, what were Lee and Ho convicted of in this case? The way the Australian law works is they divide the amounts into commercial quantities and then lower status ones. So they were found guilty of two charges of conspiracy to import a commercial quantity of border-controlled drugs. And that actually carries a maximum of life in prison in Australia. Despite the fact they have very harsh penalties, it still seems to be an attractive opportunity that drug narcos seem to, to keep going for. So Lee was found guilty of two charges of that and sentenced to 17 years in prison with no chance of parole for 12 years which is quite a substantial sentence for a 34-year-old male. Mm-hmm. And he also forfeited his SUV. Ho was found uh, guilty of the same charges, but because Lee was the boss and Ho was the right-hand man, he received a 14-year sentence with no chance of parole for 10 years and four months. So again, a substantive sentence for both of them. And what do Australian authorities have to say about these arrests, these convictions? Well, they're pretty pleased with the operation. It certainly not only nipped a growing narco enterprise in the bud, it certainly showcased their operational capacity to infiltrate this group, to have undercover operations so far embedded into the organization. It was certainly a feather in their cap. But more probably important to them is that uh, it really started to chip away at the domestic support structure for narcos. These guys were using established businesses. They were using established import-exporters, some of them unknowingly. If you have an address, a destination of a a very reputable, frequent importer of goods, it's going to attract less attention than some fringe operation that no one's ever heard of. And they were sort of piggybacking shipments onto these legitimate companies. And that was uh, probably ultimately much more important for the Australians in the long run and their continuing efforts, this sort of unending war to stop the flood of drugs coming onto their shores. Lee and Ho are not the first two Canadians who have been caught up in fairly sizable drug operations in Australia. You've reported on some of these other cases. Just to refresh our listeners' memories, what are some other instances where we've seen Canadians caught up in this? Yeah, Canadian drug traffickers really seem to have a special eye for Australia, and perhaps it's the similarities between two countries make them feel comfortable operating there. But one of the more noteworthy ones I exposed along with my colleague in 2017 that Yaroslav Pastukov, who was a music editor at Vice Media, uh, wrote under the name Slava Pastuk. He was recruiting young musicians and models and former vice interns to act as drug mules to smuggle coke into Australia. They were boarded on flights from Las Vegas, and that was 
you know, four Canadians and an American ended up getting caught at Sydney Airport and sentenced to prison, hard time there because of him. And then uh, Pastikoff himself ended up being convicted in Canada after our investigation. But there's also, your listeners might remember what they called the cocaine cowgirls. Mm -hmm. And there was a pair of young, uh, attractive women from Quebec who were on a luxury cruise. And they ended up with like 30 kilos of cocaine in their luggage. And that was actually the largest finding of cocaine on a passenger vessel in the country at the time. And uh, that story, of course, went viral because all along their journey, they had been posting this social media trove of glamour photos of them along their journey that really caught a lot of people's eyes. And, and, and that became quite a, quite a well-known case. But there's just sort of almost an unending list. 645 kilos of ecstasy was hidden in barbecues by a Canadian. An even larger one, nearly a ton of MDMA, I think in the last few years anyway, was one of the largest in Australian history, was also pinned on two Canadians. So we seem to be, I don't know to call it an expertise because they keep getting caught, but I wonder how many are getting through. But uh, certainly the Australians are eyeing uh, Canadians much more carefully at their borders. Mm-hmm. I think that would be fair to say. Is it a case that Australia is seen as a good import market for narcotics compared to possibly other countries and the fact that Canadians might blend in a little more or they, you know, it's a Western nation, so to speak, that, as you say, may be comfortable dealing that there's a combination of factors that lead Canadians into that drug market as opposed to maybe other countries. I'm sure there's an awful lot of factors. And and you mentioned some of the highlights. I mean, certainly the demand in Australia means good profit. The Mexico-American border is very crowded, very cluttered, pretty dangerous to enter. If you're trying to build an enterprise uh, from the ground up, you're not going to necessarily want to hit such a hot spot, go somewhere a little more quiet. You know, Canada also, I think, is partly why there's uh, a lot of Canadians involved is, is there's not a lot of action on the Canadian front against them. I mean, it took high profile newspaper stories and a lot of effort and work to get there to be any attention against uh, Pastikov in Canada. Whenever I try and talk to the RCMP about their end to these operations, they seem to know nothing about it, not want to say anything, and that could be operational. But, you know, and you you give them the benefit of the doubt, but then you wait years and years and there's still no action done. So Mm -hmm. I don't think Canadian narcos really feel the heat in the same way that people in a lot of other countries do. Do you have the sense that Australia would like Canada to do more to keep our people from operating illicitly in their borders? Well, I know for a fact they do. I mean, Australian police talk to me with some frustration. I mean, they ask me the same questions you're asking. Why are so many Canadians doing this? <laughs> you know, they're bewildered as well. While some of their, their, you know, certainly bigger drug targets for Australia, I mean, they recently have been after one of the biggest in the world, Seichi Lope. Mm-hmm. Who, but he was also a Canadian, in fact. Now, <laughs> you know, he, he's operating out of Hong Kong and the Golden Triangle, but he had a Canadian citizenship as well. So even at the highest level, there's Canadian involvement. And I think narcos around the world know that Canada has a, a little bit of a weak underbelly for their operational base. Hmm. Well, it is always fascinating to talk about the goings-on in the underworld with you, Adrian. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you very much for your interest. 103 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Adrian Humphreys. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.